Welcome to Software Snack Bites. I'm your host, Sean McGosh of Bold Start Ventures, where we partner with Dev First and SaaS founders from the first line of code. Today, we're excited to have Kirsten Gaffney on the show. Kirsten is a CMO at CodeFresh and previously at Buoyant and Mesosphere. She's also an active advisor to many different startups. And in this episode, we're going to cover detailed tactics for DevTools founders, how early stage teams should approach marketing, and also the marketing trade-offs between different go-to-markets. So welcome to the show, Kirsten. Thank you. You just listed off a ton of my favorite topics. So very excited to be here. I'm excited to dive in. So let's start off with your background. How'd you end up to be the CMO at CodeFresh? Yeah, well, I started off as actually a fractional CMO for CodeFresh. I was a fractional CMO for a number of developer first companies at the time. And I joined them as fractional and to see if it was going to be a good fit. I actually wasn't planning on joining, but I knew that the market for CICD was a hot market and the leadership team won me over. I joined full time and it's been a great ride. It's been a great ride. Before that, I was at Buoyant, the creators of Linkerd and then Mesosphere. And it was at Mesosphere where I really got into cloud native computing and understanding all the tools and ecosystem around that. Funny story, we just realized this, but like I happen to be wearing the Linkerd t-shirt right now that I picked up from the office one time. So <laughs> that was not planned, but you know, I'm glad <laughs> glad we we made that work. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's but, great. <laughs> but I I'd love to hear actually even just when you started into this ecosystem, right? The cloud native ecosystem, the DevTools ecosystem. What was it like? Did you have a technical background? How'd you just decide, hey, this is an area that I'm going to jump into and learn kind of the ropes to to get started. Yeah. I came from Invisalign, which are the creators of, you know, the Invisalign braces. And so hadn't been in this space at all. It was a very big change for me. And at the time, I had a close friend who was the VP of marketing at GitHub. And he introduced me to Mesosphere, the CEO, Florian. And he said, you know, I've got this really cool hot startup. You know, they're looking for marketing help. Maybe you can break in and help them out. And I joined and I quickly learned that I'd never heard anything about infrastructure or dev tool software. And so I actively became very close with all the, the engineer and product team. And that's how I onboarded myself so fast. At that time, we were all meeting in person and every single lunch we had a cafeteria on site. And so I would just sit down and talk to everyone and try to understand and all of our meetups and conferences, I'd listen to all the talks. And it was really, for me, it was like an MBA for marketing to developer and infrastructure folks. So for founders that are looking to hire a marketing leader, I think Let's go through the different stages because different personas and profiles could map to different stages in the journey. But I think first, let's start off with if a company's before revenue wants to make a marketing hire, what should they look for? It's pretty critical to have that first hire be a product marketer. So you need to focus on two things, even in that early stage, is making sure that the messaging is easy to understand and really articulates a value. And then the other thing is you do need to focus on creating buzz and awareness around the business. And product marketing is not that person. It should be two people, whether they're contract or not is depending. But the other person is could be titled demand gen person or could be titled a growth person. 
you know, everyone has a different definition of that, but really you're looking for somebody that can get you out there in front of press, in front of events and at meetups, podcasts, you know, all those type of organic activities that you can do that doesn't cost a lot of money, but will help you create buzz. So it's those two functions that you want to think about first. And you can't have one without the other, to be honest. Once you get past like 500 to a million stage, then you will need to hire contractors or full-time folks, again, depending on, on where you're at and what you need for marketing operations. So something that is not as exciting as like demand gen or you know, events or those kinds of channels, but marketing operations is somebody that is actually going to make sure your data is clean, make sure that you have all your form fills working, make sure that your you know website is optimized to collect data and that person do all your email marketing. That person is a necessary function early on. If you don't have that, it will be a complete mess later. And then the other areas that you want to start thinking about is, so you've got this product marketer slash technical marketer slash someone that is helping you articulate the value. And then you've got the growth slash demand gen slash buzz person already. And so then the next one would be a digital strategist, somebody that can help build out each of the channels from a digital perspective. So organic search, direct channel, long-term wise paid channel, that wouldn't happen right away, but all of those different channels that you have, they're the person that is going to focus on building those channels and directing them to the website, making sure the website is working and really engaging. So for the companies that are just starting out, let's say they're a proprietary dev tool company, because I think we know with the open source, you can do DevRel and, and there's other tactics that you do, but let's say there's no community to speak of right now. What should you do marketing-wise? You start going ABM and, and trying to go outbound to people. Like, What are your kind of tactics for those founders? I would approach both OSS or proprietary in a very similar manner. The only thing that is, for me, different with the OSS is that you have this additional community channel. And a lot of times there's already a lot of buzz going on with that community channel. So the difference is that you don't have that with a proprietary. And so you have to create that buzz for yourself, right? And it's just going to take longer because you don't have that community channel to leverage. So the foundations are still there. They're from both perspectives and the foundations are really making sure you have your strategic narrative and you understand your strategic keywords going down from that narrative. And then, you know, you're going to build out your organic search strategy, Events are a great way at the beginning because you can get some leads out of it, right? But you do get to talk to people in real time and face-to-face. -face, and so you learn a bunch about the product and how people are receiving it. And then it creates some nice awareness. So usually you want a organic search strategy, an event strategy. And then with that event strategy, you just want to get people speaking about you in every possible place. And there's other components involved, but that will ensure that you have that buzz. And then the organic strategy is making sure that you're building a long, sustainable business model and that you are going to claim all that digital traffic that you want to claim. When you say events, I'm curious what that means, right? Because 
okay, does that mean I should be trying to get a talk at KubeCon and, and, you know, sponsor it for X amount of dollars and do that, which maybe works, maybe doesn't. Should I be doing meetups? Should I be doing other things? Like how do you classify events for those early companies? The best way to get out there is through talks. And so submitting talks to meetups, submitting talks to conferences, really making sure that you're a part of whatever ecosystem you want to be a part of from a thought leadership and content creation perspective. And that's the least expensive way to do it, right? And then when you're at these activities, when you're at these events, then talking to people and making sure that you're engaged with them. And then if you have the budget, yeah, sponsoring them would be a great way to double down. Getting on podcasts like this one, that's also a great way to create brand awareness for your business. Yeah, so it's speaking and sponsoring. And then if you have a resource on staff that can actually create your own cadence of events, that's a great way to keep your current audience engaged. What's an example of this from the early days, whether it's Buoyant, Mesosphere, or CodeFresh, whichever one you want to take? But we talked about this buzz, right? And getting people to talk about the company and try out the product and do all of that. Like, What's a tangible example of some of the things that you did at any one of those companies? Yeah. Okay. At Mesosphere, that's a fun one. That was before COVID, so a little bit different than these days, right? But at the first year that I was there, we were speaking at over 200 events. Wow. Yeah. And it just kept going up. And so we really leveraged and that didn't mean that like it wasn't the founder at every event, right? But it was engineers that were in different places. It was actually end users in different places. So anyone talking about Apache Mesos or what we call the data center operating system was a speaking engagement and helping us create awareness. And so we had a whole program around that. And that's what helped drive our buzz. And we did it for very little money. It was great. And then at CodeFresh, we've taken a slightly different approach and that we've created our own certification program. So to get certified as a GitOps and Argo CICD expert, and we launched it a year plus ago, maybe a year and a half ago, we've, we've had nearly 20,000 people sign up for it and they promote it on LinkedIn. You know, it's a viral approach. And so every time they get certified, they are proud of that, right? And so we're providing really excellent content to the community. And the key is to making sure that we're a thought leader in the space. And how we do that is creating these different ways for us to communicate that thought leadership. Got it. What about the founders who, you know, they talk to, you're advising them, right? They're like, Kirsten, I don't have the time. I'm trying to build a business, right? I have to build the product. I've got to hire people. I've got to talk to customers. And now you're telling me, hey, <laughs> go write blog posts and do speaker talks and host a meetup. Like I'm only one person or two people or three people. You know, we can't scale ourselves that much. Why are you telling us to do this? What do you kind of tell them in terms of the prioritization? If they don't do it, they're going to have a hard time getting recognized out there. And so even if they can build it into their sprint process, if they have two-week sprints, We'll make sure that each sprint, the engineer maybe writes out a how-to guide that they could teach at the next meetup, local meetup, right? So it's already built. It has to be documented from the documentation perspective. We'll just turn that into a talk at a meetup or submit it at an upcoming conference or talk at a podcast. It's not hard. It's essentially already has to be done 
but you just then pivot it slightly into something that is digestible out there in the speaking community. And so it's, it's not as hard as people think it, once you start doing it, it's very easy. But it's almost like founders need to start thinking about, hey, we're now going to formalize externalizing this. And so when you say put into the sprints, you're literally just like, you know, hey, engineer, you're building this really cool thing. You're already doing the documentation internally. Maybe just write that into a blog post and then whatever, somebody else who's better at writing or something can make it look yeah. nicer. Yeah, that. And then they should be engaging with people, right, externally. So if there's anybody out there that loves to talk, then leverage them, help them write whatever you want them to share. And they'll probably talk about it instead, you know, just as long as you can kind of create that influencer community and leverage those folks. Yeah. That makes sense. What about the founders who are thinking about, and I've had this with my own writing, for example, I'll spend a bunch of time and be like, this is the best article ever, right? And this is condensed years of learning. And then I shift that out into the world, right? And what do you think about this balance between early teams focusing on the state of their industry or like some sort of really big thing that's like well-researched and 40 pages long versus doing something that is more consistent of a content calendar every two weeks or every month or so on and so forth? I think that there has to be a couple or maybe a quarterly big bang at least, and then smaller bites within that quarter. There's no magic here. You don't know always what that big bang is going to be. So usually it has to relate to something that's newsworthy. Like I know one of your portfolio companies, Codesy, who I advise, the CEO did a great article that related to the Southwest situation back in Christmas time. And it was, she didn't know that it was going to be so powerful, but it really brought a great amount of traffic to them. And so it's either those, or maybe it's a big launch and then independent, smaller features that are happening along the way. So it's a blend. What about for non-company specific content? So, and I think actually this is something that CodeFresh does where in the Argo community will sometimes be talking about blog posts. I mean, I guess that is related, but what if it's like completely unrelated? I've seen actually, I think Supabase does a good job of this where they'll just like put out a, an article about here's what's happening with LLMs, right? And mm -hmm. people will read it and comment and all of a sudden, like, what do you think about pieces of content like that? Yeah. As long as it ties back to you as a business, I think it's great. I think that it shows that you're really part of the ecosystem. You understand what's going on. As far as prioritization goes, I would say that that's more of a long-term play than it is a near-term play. And so, again, both are important, but you really want to make sure that you figure out your own business before you start to try to figure out others <laughs> or leveraging others, right? That's important. Specifically for open source companies, I think in some cases you can contribute a plugin or you can nest yourself into the Slack community of that other open source company and become the expert that people talk to and communicate with. CodeFresh obviously does this a lot with Argo CD. Um, I guess, why does this work? How does it work? Should more people be doing this? How do you think about kind of, I don't want to say latching onto another community, but co-opting that community or, or working alongside of it? My recommendation here is it's a good idea if you're using that community as a part of your product as part of your platform, as your engine, or whatever that may be, right? So like Kubernetes, many companies out there trying to leverage the Kubernetes market. And 
it's really important to say, well, we're leveraging it because we're actually part of that community. We're built on that. Like in the CodeFresh case, you know, we are platformed on all the all four Argo projects. We bring all four Argo projects together. We're big contributors. We're big maintainers. We are part of all the community meetings, and we actually put on the first ArgoCon before CNCF took over. And so we have a very strong reason to be a part of that community. And that's my philosophy is if it's not a technology decision, then it doesn't make sense. So you spent some time, even in your career, in various open source companies with different business models. Maybe describe those business models, right? There's some that are, you know, kind of the support, there's the hosted, there's the the open core, you know, what do those models consist of? And then I'll ask a question specific to marketing around those different models. So there's so many different open source models <laughs> these these days. I, I don't think I'm going to get into each individual open source model, but I could compare the open source model to the proprietary model. We could have a whole nother discussion another day on, on the open source, on all the various open source models. So if they're open source, the advantages there are accelerated innovation, number one, right? Because they're, they're leveraging the community that exists today. And then they could have a growth advantage from pulling the open source brand into their brand, similar to what CodeFresh and Argo has done. So those are the two advantages now, of course, I'll talk about proprietary in a second, but with both business models, what it really comes down to is understanding your customer needs and developing that product vision and execution, regardless of the model, right? If you don't have that, then neither one are advantages or disadvantages. But for proprietary software, it can take a lot longer to build brand awareness because you don't have that opportunity to attach a brand to an existing project. but if you can build that momentum for your proprietary model, it can actually have a lot of advantages in the long run because open source projects have these hype cycles, you know, somewhere like around five plus years or so, and then they cap off. And then if the hype's over and your brand is just about that open source project, well, then your brand is going to die off, unfortunately. So making sure that and this is what I tell all my advisory clients and CodeFresh and whomever I'm talking to is when you're building your brand, it's really important to not necessarily say, oh, we're the Argo enterprise platform or we're the X enterprise platform, but we are solving this problem platform, right? Like in CodeFresh's case, we are a CICD platform or an end-to-end code-to-cloud CICD platform. And by the way, we're powered by Argo. And so you don't want to try to change the market. Like we're not trying to change the CICD category in that way. I, I have a specific question though to that, which might be stage dependent, but you mentioned powered by Argo, right? But you mentioned the, the messaging was kind of different. In the early days though, the Argo community is out there. And so does it make sense then to play a bit more to the Argo side versus like at a certain scale, then you start to move away from that messaging? Or or do you kind of think from the beginning you should do more of the non-Argo specific messaging? You're still really strong Argo messaging, but it's not defining your company as the Argo platform or as the X open source platform. Okay. And I 
really believe this because nobody really cares if you're the Argo platform. What they care about is solving a problem, right? <laughs> and so that's the ultimate goal of a business is to solve a developer's problem, what they're trying to solve for, make their life more efficient. And they don't really care how you do it. They just want to get to the, solve the problem. If you just are the open source company, I mean, it's worked for some like Mongo, you know, they are Redis, they're Redis.io now, you know, so it's worked for some, but it's most likely higher probability that if you come out with solving a specific problem and you powered by whatever that open source channel is, or whatever term you want to use, you know, powered or distributed, you're chances of creating a longer lasting business and nailing that value prop at the beginning versus just, I am an Argo company, who cares, right? You will crush it. You will be a much stronger company down the road. Mongo has a pretty interesting story where it was like, hey, NoSQL and all the stuff around document databases and NoSQL and everything like that. But then now you look at their website and I haven't looked, but like, I don't <laughs> think they even mentioned NoSQL at all, right? And so this there's this interesting thing that happens, it seems like, from an outside perspective, that when companies move up market, the messaging shifts, right? And it shifts less from here's specifically what we're solving to we're the data platform for <laughs> you to use, right? And oh, by the way, if you want to look, then here's all the different products and you can dive into it. But like generally we're the data platform. And I'm assuming that is because there's different personas that will land on the website that they want to appeal towards versus in the earlier days where it's probably more closely tied to the end user? Is that like the right premise to think about? And, and how should companies think about that messaging evolution? From what I've seen out there, working with all technical founders, right? And they're very focused on features and features usually don't sell. And so I come in and it's my job to challenge them and make sure that they are turning those features into benefits, into value, right? And the messaging narrative should be tied into that value. And if it's tied into the features, then it's going to be a much harder sale and it's going to be harder to build out your sales team. It's going to be harder to build out your marketing team. And so it's probably a maturity thing. But how does that change as like from CodeFresh early days till now, right? As ARR has scaled, you know, before it was, we were talking a lot about end users and, and marketing to those end users, stuff like that. Now I'm assuming, well, I shouldn't assume anything. Maybe you're still marketing to the end users, right? But also I assume you're marketing to the buyers and the decision makers in some cases mm -hmm. and stuff like that. So how do you maintain that connectivity to the end user while also still, you know, talking moving up market? Yeah. 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 It's a great challenge that every bottoms up, top down software company has. And Really, I like to think about it is I need to market to the customer's customer. So I'm selling to the buyer and the buyer's customer is usually the developer trying to make sure that their life is easier, right? So my messaging will start with that customer's customer because I know that that end customer, if they're happy, they're going to talk to their boss and say, wow, we really need this for the whole team, right? So it's a very simple logic map. But for me, when I talk to folks, it's make sure your website is speaking to your customer's customer. Because if you can nail that, it'll be very easy to talk to your customer. You will be able to convince them 
very fast. And in this case, customer's customer, you're talking like the developer yeah. of which, okay. Yeah. Okay. So like for us at CodeFresh, we sell to the DevOps manager, the, the engineering manager. We're not necessarily selling to the C-suite for CICD platform, but our customer's customer, the DevOps team's customer is the developer. And so they're making them happy and creating that amazing developer experience will make it very easy for the, their manager, the DevOps manager, to buy. And then, by the way, DevOps manager, we also have all these beautiful reporting dashboards, and there's a lot of advantages for you, too, right, by bringing all of this together. But it starts with the customer's customer. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. In CICD, for example, it is there's a lot of different companies that are approaching that. Yeah. I'm curious. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's you know, there, there's, a, there's a few. There's a few. And, uh, uh, and so... From the marketing standpoint, how much do you focus on positioning versus competitors uh-huh. versus just kind of talking about the value that the one company brings? Yeah. Competitive marketing for us is not a huge focus. We really try to focus on what we believe in is the right way to build software and trying to be the experts behind that space, like with our certification program. And we're always bringing in customers onto our events and getting out there through PR. And so really trying to be the voice, the strong, powerful voice behind what, how we believe software should be built. And I believe in that methodology more so than just talking bad about competitors, because it makes you look small and kind of like you're suffering, right? And we're not. So um, so we have a strong vision about this. And usually people gravitate towards the visionary folks. And that's how I like to lead our company. Got it. That makes sense. One thing that I hear a lot when I'm talking to founders and, and even marketing leaders is we're, we're going to roll out this account-based marketing program. And it seems to be this sort of holy grail thing that the world is talking about, right? Like account-based marketing. This will, this is going to be the thing that really works. And it seems to be like, hey, it's specifically targeted and you get to hone in on this profile really well. I guess how targeted can you actually get? And I guess, does it actually work and does it scale? Okay. Unfortunately, there's no holy grail. We'll just clear that up right away. <laughs> if there was, we'd all be a lot richer, I'd say. Um but there's three types of ABM. There's one to many, which is usually like focusing on a vertical, right? Then there's one to few, where you're focusing on a smaller group of accounts that are in within a certain vertical. And then there's one to one, where you're talking just to that account and trying to saturate that specific account and you know everything about that account. And I've seen this tactic or strategy work grow pipeline before when a business is at like you know, no less than 20 million, but probably a little bit further along. And the reason for that is it's very resource intense from a team perspective. So usually you'll have to build out pods for the ABM program for each vertical. And the pods would include one sales AE, one SDR, one campaign manager, and one product marketer. And without having those pods, you're not going to actually do ABM. It's a fake right? You can do tests. There's different ways to kind of dabble in it and test it out a little bit, but it's hard to see if it's working unless you actually create a tiger team and get it going to see if it's something you want to do. And so usually later stage businesses have the resources to do that, right? As companies start to scale, 
I imagine you have so many different teams in the organization and marketing, of course, needs to frankly tie in very closely with all of them, right? Not just sales, but also with product, with engineering to understand with growth, obviously, to understand what's what's happening. So how does marketing stay close as you go through the different phase shifts of the company? Yeah. Well, first of all, it starts with the CEO. The CEO has to create a culture of knowledge share, right? Everything starts with that person and making sure that they really do create a culture of knowledge share, especially in this virtual world, right? So there's different tactics that I've seen happen, and I'll share that in a minute. But you know, once the CEO establishes that and really lives it and breathes it, then all of their executive leaders are going to do the same. You know, they're going to have the room and the opportunity to do the same and they'll, they'll see what we need to do. And so I usually encourage standups with the different teams. Everyone does all hands. All hands are not a great place to actually get really deep with somebody, right? It's more of just a readout. Then there's demo, weekly demo hours. And again, that's great for the engineering team, but marketing and sales and other teams, they're not usually doing demos. So they can show what they're working on, but it's much more effective if your teams are doing weekly standups or biweekly standups to actually understand, okay, what are the features coming out? Okay, sales, how are you selling this? Like, what's the feedback that you're getting from the field? Making sure that they're really collaborating as an extension of the team because product, marketing, sales, post-sales, I look at them as one go-to-market team. And so when I'm leading at these companies, I really understand what how each of these teams function. I mean, I listen to at CodeFresh, I'll listen to the customer success calls. I'll listen to the SDR calls. I'll listen to the sales calls. I'll, I'll listen to all of those conversations to make sure that I understand, you know, what's going on. And that's part of your responsibility as a CMO. I think what's happening right now in the macro is a slowdown in budgets. Mm-hmm. And, you know, across the board, frankly, go-to-market budgets are being cut, right, internally at the companies. You're being told to do more with less, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, (laughs) And so, you know, this is going to be kind of a broad question, but it's basically going to be like, you're being told to do more with less in marketing. Like, what what does that mean? What do you do? What do you do? Yeah, exactly. Well, if you're a little bit further along and you have a database, that's a good thing, right? So you have a database that you can actually leverage. And an example of that would be, at CodeFresh, yeah, we're being asked to trim fat in that way too and, and work with a leaner budget. And we said, okay, well, we still want to create all that brand awareness and the buzz and you know get the lead gen. And so we kicked off what's called Build and Deploy Conference and we got nearly 2,000 people registered. And so that cost us nothing, right? Because we had a database, we were able to market to the database and we did some additional stuff, but it was very low cost event for 2,000 people to engage in it, right? And so leveraging your database as much as possible and making sure that the cleanliness of that database is really healthy. And, you know, there's neat tools out there that will actually tell you if people leave the company and they go to a next company and enrich your database with that. So just trying to think about ways, every single way you can to keep that database just really tight 
and worked a lot, you know, like you're actually working it and providing value to the database. Organic traffic and direct traffic are going to always be your highest converting channels. And so no matter what, from a like pipeline perspective, and so really making sure that you're feeding high quality brand and non-branded content out there through those channels is key. And that doesn't cost a lot either, right? That's you creating content and doing it in a very strategic way and making sure your content strategy is sound. And so those are the things that I would focus on in addition to speaking. I'm always going to go back to speaking because that's a cheap way to get the word out there. If you don't have a database, then start building one. <laughs> and <laughs> um, and we're going to go back to the things that I talked about earlier where around 1 million mark, we are trying, trying to do the speaking, trying to do the meetups, trying to do PR, like all the things that are not quote pay to play, like don't do paid advertising, do things that are actually going to be what we call an organic activity or not pay to play. So focus more on organic during the times of budget tightening and see if you can leverage the existing audience that you have to basically spread that organic reach a little bit further because they're almost doing the marketing for you by attending, by putting on LinkedIn, by doing a talk they post on Twitter or whatever. But what about from the buyer perspective, right? So buyers also have tightening budgets, you know, across all the companies you work with, are you seeing the messaging change? And the reason I ask this is like, one thing I've noticed is it seems like efficiency has been like, you know, it used to be an efficiency story. Hey, we're going to make your developers go faster and they're just going to work a lot better and, and so on and so forth. And now it seems to have been like, hey, of course, that's still important, but also what's the cost story? And so it's almost like taking that same messaging around efficiency, but then saying, oh, because you're making your developers more efficient, you're saving, you know, X amount of human hours mm -hmm. or something like that, right? Is that something that you see being effective? And is that a change that people should be making in terms of the buyer budgets tightening? I'm not convinced that it should be a change. I think the procurement team or whomever you're dealing with understands that efficiency, speed, and cost all come together. They all mean the same thing, you know, as far as they're concerned. The thing that I say is the most important is just really being clear on what your prospects and customers want from you and delivering it to them in a beautiful way. And if you do that, then the adoption should be quite easy. So, I mean, it's never easy, but I don't think that those three like efficiency, speed, and cost are going to change anything by pivoting the messaging a little bit. Got it. Yeah. One question I have is just from your history of the companies that you've worked with, they've actually all been in fairly competitive areas like Linkerd, there was Istio, there was a couple other service meshes out there at the same time. Mesosphere, I mean, the container wars were a real thing, mm -hmm. right? Uh, code fresh <laughs> in the CICD space. In terms of all of these companies, and I'm asking a very broad question here, but when you're in these competitive industries, what should you be thinking about from a marketing perspective different than if you weren't in a competitive industry at all? I would say that it's really important to just to stay true to who you are and your vision. And it's very easy to get distracted by candy around you. And that distraction is not going to help you in the end. And just like with ChatGPT right now, 
right? I'm bringing it up, I, but but it's the same idea. It's I'm seeing every single VC letter that I get, every single founder out there is trying to build on it. And I'm thinking, yeah, it's great. However, what about all the backlog that you have? And what about your main core of your product? So I would say, if you can just stay true to your vision, you should have a strong product vision. If you can stay true to that product vision and execution, I think that these little hype cycles will be like, you should be focusing on them maybe 20%, right? You'll win. I mean, well, the market dictates who wins, but I think you'll have a much higher chance of winning by staying true to yourself. Yeah. Final question before we wrap things up. So if you're talking to all the founders that you work with and everybody that you talk to, what do you find yourself repeating over and over again in terms of go-to-market advice or just advice for those founders, given all the the different teams that you've that you've worked with? Two things. Then the first piece of advice is I say, from a go-to-market model, you have to have bottoms up and top down, okay? You have to be thinking about both. You might start accelerating in one and then think about the other one, but you always need to have those two in mind together because you will need both. You can't just be self-serve or PLG. The other thing is, if you're an OSS company, don't count on that channel to be a revenue producing channel. It very well might not be because a lot of times open source users, they choose to be open source users because they want to use free software. They don't want to pay for software or they just want to be cool and bleeding edge, right? And so they may be great influencers for you, but please don't count on that being pipeline just because you built a cloud version for it. It does not mean that they will come. That's great advice to end this on. <laughs> Kirsten, if people would like to find you, where should they reach out to get in touch? Kirsten Gaffney on LinkedIn. I love it. Well, thank you so much for the time and all the tactical advice. Look forward to doing this again. Thanks, Shomik. It was a pleasure. <laughs>